Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael Da Silva, and I am your host for episode 27. In this episode, Brian Joyce is going to continue his study on the Gospel of John, this time considering chapter 17. His message is entitled, The Six Prayer Requests of Jesus. Thank you for joining today's podcast. It is my intention to speak from John 17. John 17 records the beautiful words of Jesus as he speaks with his Father prior to the cross. In the first section, he speaks about his glory and his desire to be with his Father. He then moves into intercession on behalf of his immediate disciples, then for all his children, which include you and me. Today's podcast will be devoted to six requests that Jesus makes in this chapter. He prays for protection, for unity, for joy, for sanctification, for glory, and intimacy. Each of these truths that Jesus prayed for have both positional and practical aspects to them and will help us in our present walk with God. First, he prays for protection. Let's read verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, the Lord Jesus is requesting protection for his own. Notice the language of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The main responsibility for the security of the disciples, and now us, is in the hands of our Father. In the Old Testament, we see over and over how God protected His people. At the Red Sea, for example, it says, The Lord will fight for you. When Amalek attacked, the Lord is our banner. With the twelve disciples, Jesus was there, physically and very protective to ward off the enemy. He protected them from every danger that could possibly come upon them from the schemes of unbelieving men, to the activity of evil spirits, to the harsh, self-serving words of Jewish leaders. Jesus guided, steered, and hedged them for three years straight. Now he was leaving and handing off responsibility to his and their father. The, The idea of the word keep is to guard or to keep one's eye upon. The Father has his eye upon you. Of Israel, it says, he found them in the desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32.10 Psalm 95, 6 and 7 say, Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. We are the people he watches over, the flock under his care. Keep them in your name. 
means that the preservation and protection of God's people depends on the very character and nature of God himself. So all the qualities that make up the name of God are invested into our protection, his love, his holiness, his grace, his righteousness, his power, and his wisdom. It's all in place for you. Let's not forget that they and we have been given to Jesus by the Father as a gift. We are his prized possession. I see in these words the truth of eternal security and also the idea of daily personal protection. This does not mean immunity or isolation from problems and difficulties, but rather that he would see us safely through. God has promised his presence and therefore his protection. There are many emotions that can grip us at a time of great stress, trial, and difficulty. Two that come to mind are grief and fear. We are never told not to grieve. We need to work through our grief, but someone counted 365 times to fear not in the Word of God. How does it make you feel when you know that you are cared for and kept by your Heavenly Father, that He is invested in your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual protection? The term Father can bring up a lot of thoughts, some negative, some positive, depending on the character or personality of your earthly father. Let me assure you that all the positive qualities that should mark a father are his. He loves, he knows, he cares, he is desirous and willing to give you as much of himself as you will take. While this is very individual between you and your father, how does God provide his protection over his people today? He brings us into his place of shelter, love, and acceptance. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he calls it the house of God, a place where the father's children are taken care of, protected, fed, sheltered from the attacks of the enemy. Notice the outcome or purpose of this protection in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. Feeling and being safe is a necessary factor in a company enjoying unity. This is the second request of Jesus I would like to consider. Unity. If you haven't heard Pablo's podcast on unity, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But in, in verses 11 and then uh, verse 21 to 23, we, we learn uh, about this reality this desire that the Lord Jesus has for his disciples and, I believe, including us, to, to live and enjoy unity. Notice verse 11, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 21, that they may, that they may all be one just as you. Verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. It is therefore a very important aspect of the forward movement of God's kingdom, the unity of his people. It is no wonder that the devil has attacked this desire of Jesus and vehemently tried to uh, ruin it 
down through the centuries. It is important to note that God is the source. God is, is marked by unity. There is no division, no dissension, no disunity or discord in the Godhead. There is diversity, but no disunity. There is unity in possession, possession of the same life. There is one God, not two or three, three distinct persons, but one eternal God. There is unity of purpose. They all want the same thing. All three persons of the Godhead are in absolute, full agreement. And then there is unity of practice. They each work in perfect harmony. While there is uh, diversity in job roles within the Godhead, in their activities there is full support for one another. No jealousy, no power trips, no seeking to undercut or undermine the work of the other. Jesus is praying that the unity present in God's nature would be transferred to his people. How could there be unity among so many different people, different backgrounds, different personality types, interests, philosophies, and pursuits? Narrow it down to the twelve disciples. There was enough in any one of them to split up the group and cause them to start eleven different religions. When Jesus was with them, he basically kept them in line. A correction here, a rebuke there, a kind of talk to one and a simple look at another. He kept them together as a group, but now he's leaving. How are they going to stay unified? How are all the saved people of the world going to be kept together? All you need is two people for there to be disunity, and I'm not even sure you need two. There is only one way. The unity must come from God himself. He must first give it to us. And that is exactly what happened at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, after the Lord Jesus ascended to his Father, the Holy Spirit was sent down to indwell his people, the church. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. As each believer is saved, the Spirit of God indwells and unifies each one into the body of Christ. In this unity, Christ in heaven is the head and we the people uh, on earth are his body getting our direction, our commands, and our enabling from our head and indwelling life. With the Spirit of God indwelling each believer, there is unity, a unity of possession, the possession of God's life. We all share the same life of God. This is what Jesus was praying for, and this is what the Father did. Any believer from any country or background can shake hands or hug or, or give the holy kiss. I mean, when COVID-19 restrictions are lifted and, and in perfect confidence say, Brother, Brother Tim or, or Sister Ruth, knowing that you are in the same family. Up to this point, it's all good. A perfect unity from a perfect God. 
The big problem is when we tend is that we tend not to be perfect. I want to push the whole concept of unity a little further. We need to talk about unity in purpose and unity in practice. God has been so good in providing us so many ways uh, to put unity into practice. Let's consider two. Number one, our homes. This starts with the unity of the marriage bond. This bond gets its character from the relationship between Christ and the church. It is uh, inseparable and based on sacrificial love. Ephesians 5, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This gluing or cleaving to is a lifelong process. Two different people coming together in unity, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and and thus putting into practice the wishes of Jesus in John 17. Does this mean there will be no differences of opinion, no arguments, no conflicts? Someone said a marriage without conflict uh, means one of two things. First, One partner has all the say and the other has no voice. Second, you're both on drugs and and your brains are fried. Uh, Sorry, maybe that's a little bit extreme. Let me say this. If, If you want some good advice on marriage conflict, talk to my wife. But if you're asking me, one very important piece of advice is this. Always show respect. Always give honor to the other partner. It's a lot more difficult than you might think. Another area where unity is tested is in our local churches. Let's read Ephesians 4, 1-7. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. While Ephesians envelops the whole church, unity is most often expressed on a local level. Paul makes reference to the believers as walkers. In chapter 4, we are told to walk worthy of our calling. The idea behind this word worthy is that of a balance or a scale. Paul wants our practical Christian life to balance with the calling we have from God. One of the main areas of balanced Christian living is unity in the body, as described in verse 4. Unity is not uniformity. It, it comes from within and, and is a spiritual reality, whereas uniformity comes from outside pressure. First, let's consider the qualities that make for unity. Humility or lowliness, that is, esteeming ourselves correctly before God. Warren Wiersbe says that humility means knowing ourselves, accepting ourselves, and being ourselves to the glory of God. 
This is a Jesus attitude. Then there's gentleness or meekness, the attitude that submits to God's dealings and uh, unkindness without re retaliation, not pushing for our own agenda, but considerate of the needs of others, the result of the humble mind. Then there's patience and love and diligence and peace, which means to, to bind together like the ligament that holds the body together. Secondly, let's consider the functioning of the body in a local setting. The local church should get its character from the larger church, which is obvious because its members are believers. Unity and diversity are both essential for the proper functioning of the body. Ability and gifts are given by God. The church in Corinth was having major troubles on this front. They were focusing on what they had to give rather than the reason the gift was given. Psalm 133 provides further study on unity. Four major realities are brought out. It is good. It is fragrant. It is refreshing. And it is a sure guarantee of God's blessing. Let's now consider the third request of the Lord Jesus. Verses 13 and 14. It is the request for joyfulness. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The word joy is only found once in John 17, but several times in the writings of John, and I would just like to briefly go over them. Number one, chapter 15, verse 11. I have spoken that your joy is full. It comes from abiding in Christ's love, that is being near to Him. Chapter 16, verse 20. Your sorrow will produce joy. It is transformational as we see the results, like a baby being born. Remember when they were in the upper room, all gloomy and sad, and yet when they saw their risen Lord, they were filled with joy. Chapter 16, verse 22, your joy cannot be taken away. It can't be stolen by others. It is a choice. Chapter 16, verse 24, ask that your joy may be full. Answered prayer will bring joy. Chapter 17, where we've read, verse 13, my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy comes from the assurance of his word. Jesus spoke in very straightforward, yet, yet very endearing terms to his disciples. He knew they, they would be, there would be sorrow and hardship, yet he spoke to them for this purpose, that they might have his joy. Notice the expression in verse 13, my joy. Just as the unity is sourced in God and Jesus, so the joy it is His joy, my joy fulfilled, to make replete, to cram, to level up a, a hollow, to, to furnish, to, 
to finish a task or to satisfy. And so, as we, as we go through the difficulties of life, may we choose joy. And as we do, we will honor and glorify the Father. The fourth request is seen in verses 16 to 19. It is the request for sanctification. Notice how he, he speaks. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Positional sanctification, 2 Corinthians 5 uh, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creation. Positional sanctification in Christ. This happened the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior. Practical sanctification is 1 Peter 1. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus sets himself apart for our sanctification. Verse 19, I consecrate myself. In Romans 12, verse 2, we see how this practical sanctification works. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The body surrendered, the mind renewed. This happens each time you read the word and let it change you. According to John, the Son is truth. Chapter 14, verse 6, appealing to our affection. The Spirit is truth. 1 John 5, verse 6, appealing to our will. The Word is truth. Chapter 17, verse 17, appealing to our behavior. The two remaining requests are seen near the end of the Lord's Prayer. Number five is in verse 24. It is the request for fullness. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. In John 1, we have present fullness. It says, of His fullness we have received. We have received grace upon grace. Here in John 17, it is future fullness. To be with Him where He is. The Lord Jesus loves us so much that He, he wants us to be with Him eternally. What a wonderful hope we have. The last request is for intimacy. Notice verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, you, know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Just as there are levels of intimacy in human relationship, so there are varying degrees of closeness between us and God. The closeness between the Father and the Son is constant, unmeasurable, and always at, a, at its deepest level 
It is God's desire to draw us into this kind of closeness. He wants us to know him intimately as he knows us. We know the impossibility of this while here on earth, but but this should be our deepest longing. We become increasingly intimate with God when we spend time alone with Him, when we feed our souls on His Word, when we fellowship with other believers, when we talk to Him in prayer, and when we worship Him in the beauty of holiness. Family Life Canada gives five levels of intimacy. Number one, safe communication, exchange of facts and information. Number two, Others' opinions and beliefs, sharing other people's opinions, thus revealing more of ourselves. Three, personal opinions and beliefs, taking small risks and sharing our own ideas. Four, my feelings and experiences, opening up ourselves, becoming more vulnerable. And five, my needs, emotions, and desires, known at the deepest core uh, of who we are. This involves a great amount of trust. This is the level that God desires to bring us to with himself. How can we gain this level of intimacy? Guard those daily encounters with God. Spend time in his presence. James 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a face-to-face encounter with the God of heaven. I hope these six requests of Jesus for protection, unity, joy, sanctification, fullness, and intimacy will help us in our relationship with God and our interactions with one another. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Keep looking up.